Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the lion's den, and I am here with Steve Verlay, Chief Operating Officer with the Colson Center. And I've gotten to know you because over the last year and a half, Colson Center, their radio products, Breakpoint, The Point, Breakpoint This Week, and the Breakpoint Podcast are produced by my company, Right Turn Media. And in getting to know you, dude, my man, I just freaking love you. And you are a holy smoker who splits his time between Seaside, Oregon and Austin, Texas. We'll talk a lot more about that. But you do spend quite a bit of time here in Colorado Springs. And so the few times that we have gotten together and had cigars have been just awesome times together. First question, though. What you smoking? It is a tabernacle. And I took the uh, label off, so I can't tell you what type of tabernacle it is. <laughs> I can dig it up. It's probably in the ashtray there, but yeah. it's, it's a tabernacle. Tabernacle. And I noticed you came with a bag, so did you pick it up? Did you bring it from where you were at? or? Yeah, I've been carrying this one around for a little while. I think I got this one in Austin a little while ago, and it's, uh, it was up next. Nice. And then I've just got a smoker-friendly Nicaraguan blend that... I just picked up on my way back. I'm getting low on cigars. I got to reach back out to some of the manufacturers that have been supplying us and get some more for the podcast. There you go. So, Steve, you are a fellow Midwestern kid. You grew up in Indiana. I did. Mishawaka, so, Indiana. Where is Mishawaka? Mishawaka, Indiana is right next to South Bend, Indiana, which is up on the northwest side of the state. Which you and I have had a conversation I seriously looked at when I was in college, seriously looked at going to Taylor which is an upland about, what is it, probably about an hour, hour and a half south yeah. of South Bend. Fort Wayne area. Yeah, it's kind of between Indianapolis and South Bend. And I happened to stop by South Bend on my way back to Wisconsin and spent a night there. And I fell in love with the Notre Dame campus. It Notre Dame campus is it special. Is absolutely gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous campus. I believe it's 1,200 acres and there's two lakes and... Just a lot of architecture, and apparently one there's a tree on campus from every state in the country or something like that. They just purposely planted and just kind of you know created a. So yeah, I guess I, I guess when, when when you have that many students, obviously it's a Catholic school, but yes. that many students coming from around the nation mm -hmm. that do something like that's pretty cool. Yep. So how did you get to Notre Dame? I mean, obviously you had plans to go somewhere else. <laughs> I did. Yeah, so I grew up in Mishawaka. I, I was probably 10 or 15 minutes away from the Notre Dame campus, so it was part of my life. Both of my brothers had gone there in their time. My dad actually went to night school there way long time ago. Yeah. And so it was kind of, and I went to a Catholic high school. So <laughs> it was kind of the thing, you know, you yeah. matriculated and you went to Notre Dame. But I was really into science and engineering, well, science in high school. And my dream all the time was to go into astronomy. That I was an amateur astronomer, built my own telescope did all that stuff when I was in high school. So I had my sights set on going to MIT and studying astronomy, physics and astronomy. And so as I went through my senior year in high school, applied, did the SATs, did all that kind of stuff, was accepted at MIT, was kind of a dream fulfilled, lifetime dream. But something about being born in Indiana, I guess there's this whole aspect of, I've never been to Boston, I've never been to the MIT campus, and I was gonna spend the next four years of my life there and so decided to go to Boston and check it out. So bought a ticket, went to Boston, managed to crash on the floor of a friend of a friend's dorm fraternity room and checked out the campus. And it just was really troubling. I mean, you know, not surprisingly, it, there were a lot of geeks there. People worked really, really hard there. It yes. shouldn't have been a big surprise. But I you know, was already starting to think that college maybe should be more than just all about the studying and all yeah. that. Plus, it was a very urban campus and mostly concrete and buildings and just you know, really dense concentrated, which was something I was not used to coming out of Indiana. And so I went back home and started thinking about Notre Dame and a couple of my friends from high school were going there. So that was an attraction as well. And it was actually after the application deadline, I went to the campus, talked to a guidance counselor. Yeah. And so he, he was really savvy, kind of said, well, so you want to study astronomy? And he said, you know, undergraduate, Pretty much, if you're doing astronomy, that's what you do in master's and your PhD. Undergraduate is really physics. And he pulls out a book. Back in the, those days, no internet. So he pulls out a book and shows me that MIT was the number one college in the country in physics and Notre Dame was number eight. 
That's not too bad. Not too bad. I mean, you want to, you know, you drop it from number one to number eight. And so I asked him, I said, hey, you know, I stayed on campus when I was there. I'd love to see what the campus life is like here. Could you hook me up and get me an opportunity to stay on campus? And yeah. so he put me together with a couple of guys and I stayed in their room for a weekend and it turned out to be a home football weekend. And the place was just crazy. Which, which is electric. I mean, it's electric. And, Absolutely. And, and anyone that's it, yeah. never been to a big time college campus on a football weekend. Yep. Yeah. It's something that's yeah. just, it's unique that is just. So anyway, long story short, I gave up MIT, went to Notre Dame, I enrolled in physics. My roommate, my freshman year was actually studying computer science and I was fascinated. I knew nothing about computers. This is way back in the seventies. So yeah. What, what um, years, what years were you at? I, I started in 74 and graduated in 77. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so, so computer science was computer. like, it wasn't like computer science in the eighties or no. computer science in the nineties. This is very early mm-hmm. on before. PCs way yep. before Microsoft and yep, exactly so anyway I was fascinated by what he was doing and just uh, kind of just switch majors my freshman year so what, what kind of jobs would you get with a computer science degree yeah I, I, like what kind of prospects were there back then in the mid 70s it was hot I mean uh, 77 in particular when I graduated was hot I was planning to go to grad school and yeah. I, I was accepted at University of Illinois in Urbana, which was a really good computer science master's degree program. I was going to go there. Yeah. And I just interviewed just to kind of get some practice at it. And I had done a lot of work early on with Intel microprocessors at Notre Dame, which was a new thing at the time. Nobody knew Intel back then. Yeah. And so I knew a lot about their products and I ended up getting an opportunity to go out to Santa Clara, Silicon Valley back in the day and interviewing with Intel and they offered me a job and I, it was just too much to pass up. I was getting married and... <laughs> The idea was like, well, I could pay somebody to go to grad school for a couple of years and then get a job, or I could take a job now and they would pay me all this money, which at that time was a lot, I mean, it felt to me like an immense amount of money. Yeah. And moved to Silicon Valley, which was kind of cool, and coming from, you know, being a kid from Indiana, so. So I've watched some documentaries about Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s as well, but yep. really kind of the 70s when it really started to blow up. Talk yep. about that time. Uh, it was, I mean, electric. I mean, you used the word about going to campus. I mean, I was just in pig heaven. I mean, it was like, you know, the weather was gorgeous. What was your role people, there? Technical marketing was my job. So I did application notes and helped engineers figure out how to design Intel products into their stuff, basically. So yeah. it was a very technical role, but it was actually customer facing, which is kind of weird for an engineering student to get involved <laughs> in something that was outward facing. And, yeah. But, 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 yeah, but, 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 but I think really I, I think bright people. You what, know? what I know about your personality, yeah. you're able to work in both of those worlds very effectively. I mean, you are this cerebral dude, but you also have this just nice, warm, humble personality that just it's very warm, very yeah. warm. Well, thank you. That developed, actually. I mean, I started, I mean, to jump ahead, I spent my first three years at Intel in a technical capacity, but with some level of external interface. And in 1980, I ended up taking a job in sales, which was huge change because, I mean, for a kid coming out of engineering yeah. school to take a job carrying a bag, actually doing sales where you had a quota and you go out and, and you know, sell. That was really transformational. And uh, Why did you make that move? Uh, it was a weird... <laughs> I got sold by a good salesman, I guess. And I, <laughs> I actually interviewed for a job in technical marketing, a field technical marketing role, and I ended up meeting a district sales manager, and he listened to me, and he said, well, what do you want to do long-term? And I said, well, I, I've been around these guys that do what's called product marketing. It's kind of where you do product definition, and you work kind of halfway between sales and engineering, yeah. kind of mapping out product roadmaps and figuring out what you're going to design next. And I said, that looks really cool. And he goes, well, if you're going to do that, you've got to be a salesman, not a technical marketing guy, because salesmen understand competitors, they understand pricing, they understand all that stuff, and you're going to need that in order to be a good product manager. So he was a good salesman. He sold me on taking a job in sales. So So. as someone who has been in sales, short little bits, that for me was a significant shift in terms of mindset, in terms of the way in which you do things. What was it like for you to make that jump from technical marketing to sales. It was hard, I have to admit. I mean, I literally, for the first year I was in sales, I would sneak into the lab and do programming on the side just for fun because, I mean, I literally had to code. It was just something that I was just <laughs> used to. And I'd, so I'd get a fix out of just designing software just for the heck of designing software. And then after about a year, that all went away. And then I actually really became fascinated with the business side of things. I didn't have any business training in school, but you know, when you're in sales and you're dealing with the factory and you know you're starting to deal with people that are designing products and product lines and you're kind of into the strategy of what they're trying to do and who they're competing with and how pricing works and 
know, how the whole design cycle works in terms of what it takes to get somebody to design your parts into a system. And I ended up learning, of, becoming really fascinated with business. And yeah. um, so that part I really liked, you know, the, yeah. the actual meeting with buyers and haggling over pricing and, you know, worrying about your quota and all that kind of stuff. I didn't care much for that, but it was a really good segue back to a job ultimately where I did end up in product marketing, where I was doing product definitions. So that was more about kind of understanding, you know, customer needs and trying to map out a product roadmap and figuring out who your competitors were and how to basically help the salespeople sell that product, how to price it, how to... So the salesman was right in that... It was absolutely right. It was a great stepping stone into a career that I really loved and doing that for a long time. And then I eventually went into management from there. But yeah, that whole experience, I, you know, probably to some extent shaped you know a lot of who I am now. Um, yeah. I, mean, I, I would never would have considered myself a salesman, but in effect, one of the things I learned, I think, was, and I found this later as I was leading people in management jobs, that I'd get somebody, especially somebody that was from the field, or whatever, you know, coming in from field sales, and they were dealing with engineers now, and they would have a really hard time interfacing with these people. And I'd say, yeah, come on, you know how to sell. You've been selling for years. You're selling an idea to an engineer. You're selling. Just use the same skills. You can't dictate to them. You can't yeah. tell them what to do. Yeah. You got to sell. You're selling ideas. You're selling concepts. You know, it's a, selling is just something that people do when they try to. You know, basically, you're trying to influence somebody. You know, hopefully in a positive way, right? Something that's yeah. good for them, good for you. It's a win-win situation. So, at one point, you had an opportunity. When was it to go to a this small little company that was working with Intel? Yep. That kind of blew up kind of blew and, up from and, there, yeah. and became something really really huge <laughs> talk about that yeah so it was 19 i think it was 1982 so i'd been in sales for three years one of my customers was a software company in bellevue washington called microsoft and nobody knew who they were at the time there were like 100 people they had just moved from albuquerque new mexico i was wondering if, yeah. if it was it was just how- really it was still the early crowd of folks that had come out, out of albuquerque and so one of the guys that I would meet with once a month, typically just take them out to lunch. They didn't really buy much, but they were fascinating people. And I just yeah. really got to like them. And so I was having lunch with this guy and he said, hey, you know, we got this really new project, really super secret. Can't tell you about it. It's using one of your chips, though. And so he was kind of teasing me for like about a year as they were working on this project. And I never knew what the project itself was. And literally, this is a kind of a weird deal. I had set up lunch with him. We were sitting at the restaurant and he goes, hey, did you read the news? And I said, no. And he goes, well, we finally announced that project. And it's, we did a deal with IBM and we designed this thing they're calling a personal computer. And it's using an 8088, which is, of course, you know, the Intel mm-hmm. device. And he goes, you want to go back and see it? <laughs> so we left the restaurant and we went back to the office and he shows me this kind of circuit board with a bunch of you know, wires in it. And that was the original PC motherboard from the original 8088-based Microsoft you know, product that they had designed with IBM. And then he said, well, you know, this is really going to put us on the map and we're really looking to expand and we're going to hire some salespeople and you're a sales guy and would you be interested in a sales job? And at the time they were hiring four salespeople and they were going to cut the country up in quarters. And so I started talking to them about a job that would have been the salesperson for the Southeast, which in their definition was everything from Virginia to Florida across to Texas and up to... I don't know, Missouri or something. That's was, a lot a huge, of territory. Huge territory. Oh my gosh. And there was only four of them and basically would have been, you know, selling for Microsoft at the time. And so I actually, I went through, you know, all the interviews, interviewed with Bill Gates and with Steve Ballmer and the whole team that was there. They offered me the job and I took the job and then I resigned. I went into my sales manager, who was the same guy that sold me on coming into the sales job in the first place. And, you know, I was so naive. I was 20 some years old and I just, back in, in my world, when you left a company, you gave them two weeks' notice. That's what you did. Yeah. So I said, oh, I'm two weeks' notice. And they said, well, where are you going to go? And I said, I'm going to go work for Microsoft. And they said, you're not going to go work for Microsoft. And he came in literally that afternoon, I think it was, and he put a plane ticket on my desk and he said, you're going to Santa Clara tomorrow. I went, you need to meet with the leadership team at, at Intel. So I dutifully got on a plane and went to Intel and started out with the regional sales manager and then the national sales manager and ended up meeting with a guy named Bill Davidow, who was the... VP of sales and marketing at Intel. And they just did a number on me. They, they worked me hard all day long. And one of the early guys found that I realized they were talking to each other because they were trying to find the weak spot in my yeah. thinking. And I had a one-year-old and a four-year-old at the time. And my wife was really uneasy about the work ethic at Microsoft and the travel because I would have been 50% travel. And I was living in Seattle, so that would have been cross-country you know, flights and all. And they discovered that I was uneasy about whether or not it was really a good thing for my family. And then they just hammered me <laughs> on that. So I got home and talked to my wife and we said, "Now nah, they're right. This is not a good thing to do. So next morning I called Steve Ballmer and said, Steve, I changed my mind. 
And he literally screamed at me over the telephone, told me I had to come back in, that I was making the biggest mistake of my life, and all the rest of it. So, And I wasn't even a believer at this point, but that was one place where God just protected well, me. Well, I mean, a mistake in a financial mm-hmm. perspective, I can see, but not in terms of... I mean, I've heard you describe those early Microsoft employees as being divorced and just lonely and... Wealthy and divorced. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It would have been, you know, I probably would have ruined my marriage. It would have, you know, I mean, again, it would have been fascinating intellectually. It would have been electric, you know, to use that word again, to be part of an industry like that that was exploding. But obviously I I had a great career. I stayed at Intel and ended up leaving and being part of a bunch of other technology companies. So I didn't miss much really, but that was an interesting episode of my life. You just mentioned your faith journey. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about that because you grew up Catholic Mm -hmm. and then... When you came out of college, you were in a much different position, if I remember right. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Somebody once told me about being educated beyond your intelligence, and I think that affected me. So, you know, interestingly, when I look back in Catholic high school, I remember being taught in biology class about evolution and really buying into that. A, it was interesting that they would teach that in a Catholic high school, yeah. and B, that I would be led to just, you know, swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And to some extent, it was probably my earliest brush with worldview, too, in terms of hey, well, wait a minute, if we all just came from animals and, you know, you follow that to its logical conclusion and mm-hmm. I just walked away from my faith and I was, you know, succeeding in a career and started a family and, you know, just wasn't really interested in going to church that much. So we had kids pretty early and my wife was very committed to her Catholic faith and our son was baptized in the Catholic faith. Our daughter, you know, they both did first communion. They were confirmed. Over time, yeah. I was just, you know, less and less interested in it. Really didn't have an intellectual foundation. And I think it was the faith of my parents and it was not a faith that I yeah. really had owned myself. And so by the time I was 30, I was you know, pretty much a, you know, declared myself a secular humanist and I had just completely walked away, stopped going to church and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, God didn't let go of me. I let go of him temporarily, I suppose. But I look at those moments though, and I say, he was still protecting me. You know, I think in that instance, he was protecting me from making a decision that would have probably really damaged my family, you know, long term. So, very grateful for that in retrospect, but didn't see it at the time. Yeah. And only could only see it looking back on that episode. So where did you go after Intel? There was a bunch of guys from Intel that left Intel in 1983, and they started a company called Sequent Computer Systems, which is they wanted to go build big computer systems based on microprocessors. And these were some of the brightest guys. Quite a few of them people I had worked with a lot at Intel, and I knew that they had left, it was a big deal. In fact, 17 guys left Intel all on the same day. It was a scandal because they all resigned in mass. Andy Grove, who was the CEO of Intel at the time, just lost it because these guys, one guy was the general manager of the microprocessor division. The other guy was general manager of the memory products division. So the two biggest product divisions of the company left on the same day and took 15 other guys with them. And it was a scandal. And so I knew all of them. And it was kind of like, wow, it's really interesting watching this thing go down. About three years later, they finally started taking off. And I got a call at home from a guy I knew at Intel. It was one of those 17. And said, hey, you know, we're looking for more people. And I got, you know, end up meeting with the president of Sequent, a guy named Scott Gibson, who I knew of at Intel and absolutely just really, really liked the guy and just was super impressed with what they were doing. And I'd been at Intel nine years by then, and they were just doing some really cool stuff. And so I jumped in with them and was there for about seven years. And that was just probably one of the best seven years of my life career-wise. Really? Yeah, just learning and growing. I mean, it was, it was just a rocket ship. I mean, there were 15 million the first year and 45 the next year went public, you know, went, grew to 300 million and just scaled up. And, you know, so I, I was in a very high growth company and it just enabled me to really grow in my career and learned a ton. And it was just a really good experience. So how did you end up in the Pacific Northwest? Cause Intel, you, you, Intel you, you moved me up, up there really the first year. I mean, I'd been at Intel six months in, in Silicon Valley. Okay. And the division I was part of was really growing rapidly. And they announced to us in December, hey, we're moving the whole division to Oregon because we need room to grow. We need to be able to hire people. And yeah. so they recruited us to basically move. It was an option. I could have stayed and moved to a different division, but the division I was part of. So we okay, basically... So- Sales and then... Well, yeah, I was still in a technical marketing job at the time. Yeah, and so the sales and everything, all that happened up in in the the Pacific Northwest. I moved from Portland to Seattle, and then I moved back to Portland three years later. And uh, so nine years with Intel, but I moved a lot, you know, over those nine years. Yeah. So So after that seven years, where'd you go? Yeah, Sequent had, again, looking at business cycles, 1991, we were just an absolute... 
our president and CEO had said at one point in time that we hit the wall at 90 miles an hour, no skid marks, because sequence just grew and grew and grew. And then there was this massive recession in 1991, right when the Kuwaiti war broke out. Yeah. And it just devastated the company and massive layoffs and culture really changed. The president that I really admired left the company and it just became a very, not a good place to be. The culture went from being great to being really bad. And so the president of the company had left and he had joined the board of another Intel spinoff company called Radisys. And so I get a call from Radisys, the CEO of Radisys. And it turns out that, you know, the president who I knew at Sequent had put a bug in the CEO's ear about approaching me about a VP of marketing job. So this was my first job, opportunity to be a vice president. Yeah. And another startup company, they were, you know, 15 million in revenue. And so I, I left Sequent, went over to Radisys as a VP of marketing, and then spent about six years there, another rocket ship. I mean, we grew to a couple hundred million and went public. And, you know, so again, it was just, it was rock and roll. It was, it was a lot of fun. And um, so I did that for about six years. And then, you know, kind of got the idea that the only thing left on my bucket list, so to speak, from a career standpoint, would be to get a CEO job. Yeah. I worked for a CEO for a number of years, and I really enjoyed that. And so I actually sat with the CEO and said, look, I'd like to put my hat in the ring for a CEO job with some headhunters, and if an opportunity came around. And sure enough, a couple months later, an opportunity came to take a CEO job of a company up in Seattle. So I moved back to Seattle again. That was 1999. Yeah. And that was, again, boom time. You know, the internet bubble was going crazy. And so I had an opportunity to be a CEO of a publicly traded technology company up in Seattle for four years from 99 to 2003. So you saw the technology bubble burst yes, on, on, on your watch. <laughs> Again, yeah. On your watch. Yeah, 2001, that was a nightmare. Yeah, that was not a good time to be the CEO of a publicly traded company that had plummeting revenues and, and all the rest. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a tough time. I mean, that was actually, I wouldn't say that I came to my born-again faith right then, but it was right in the middle of that crucible that, you know, and, and like I said, I, I really don't want to say that that business stress you know caused it there was a whole bunch of other things going on in my life but i did give my life to the lord in 2003 which was right in the midst of that the failure of that not failure but you know really downturn of that company we ended up selling it to motorola yeah and i exited in 2003 but that's when i really found real faith was in that time frame well you talked about a bunch of other stuff going on as well let's unpack that a little bit for listeners because i have no doubt that there are some right now that are listening that either are on the verge of what you went through mm-hmm. or are in the midst of what you went through or are recovering from what you went through. Yeah. And so talk about that a little bit more because you went through some pretty rough yeah, stuff uh, personally. Yeah. So let me back up. 95, I guess, is the time frame. So that's when we went public at Rate Assist and you know, my career was going well. And we had just done an acquisition that I led, and it was my first opportunity to be a general manager of a division and all that, traveling like crazy, and just had prioritized, you know, my career became, my, my wife at one point said, I didn't have a mistress in terms of an infidelity, but my mistress was my job. Yeah. And I remember, still remember her telling me that, and it was true. And, you know, that was 95-ish. And so that was a really, really tough time. And again, this is a, when I look back, another God moment. I was not walking with the Lord at that point. Wasn't going to church. And my kids were, you know, reasonably young at this point. So my daughter was four, I think. No, 14, sorry. Son, 17. And I, I really distinctly remember, like I had told you about this part of it. Literally, we were at the kind of the depths of it. And I had mentally decided that I was ending the marriage as a result of this. And, you know, she was not happy and it didn't seem to be reconcilable at all. And I remember it was this weird time where we were supposed to go to a party with some friends from work and we were having a really bad blow up at this point. And obviously we weren't going to go to this party and -hmm. I couldn't get hold of them to tell them I wasn't coming. So I got in my car and I was going to drive to their house and just tell them, look, I can't tell you why, you have a tough time, but we're not coming to this party. And I got my car and just as I was driving, I just got this strong sensation of, no, you're supposed to fight for this. You know, you're going to fight for this marriage. And so we didn't go to the party and, you know, just a lot of reflection. And I remember, I can't remember the details, but I remember kind of writing out to my wife, this kind of like this declaration of saying, I'm going to fight for this. And I kind of wrote a bunch of promises on there in terms of how I was going to change. You know, it's kind of like I wasn't in control. I couldn't get her to change her belief. She'd fallen in love with someone else. That was where she was at. And so I realized that if I was going to fight for this, I had to be the one to change myself, if you will, or to, the only one that to make you some could, commitments. Really. Right, make some commitments. So I remember writing this promises, and the first promise was, I'll start going back to church with you. Because I knew that was important to her, even though we weren't going to church at this point in time. 
And that was one of the things I wrote. And, that, you know, and so I followed through. And, I, and, and your uh, wife was going to a Catholic church at the time. Uh, you know, we, no? we had kind of like done some church shopping. We'd looked at a couple different things. But there was a church that was in our neighborhood. It was called Mountain Park Church. And the pastor was a guy named Dave Bennett and his wife Phyllis. And they had two sons and actually were contemporaries of my kids. Went to school with my kids. And my daughter, it's interesting, my daughter had started going to Young Life with a bunch of her friends, and she was really enjoying these kids, and many of these kids went to this church, so she had started going to this church, yeah. even though we weren't going to that church, and she was. So it just seemed natural that was the place we would go, and so we started going to Mountain Park Church, and it was kind of really interesting for me, a couple things that were really fascinating. One was Dave Bennett was the uh, pastor. Dave had gone to MIT, interestingly, how this comes <laughs> back into the story, and he was a mechanical engineer, undergrad, so same kind of background as me. Yeah. And when he graduated, he felt a call to go into ministry. He went to Princeton Divinity and got his MDiv and ended up becoming a pastor. So part of it was for me was like, wow, this is a really smart dude who likes engineering. And, you know, I had kind of built up this mythology about, you know, only people that are Christians or people that are weak and don't think for themselves. Sounds very derogatory now. So I was really impressed with Dave. Secondly, the church practiced expository teaching. And, you know, just basically was plowing through chapters of the Bible. And as a Catholic, it wasn't preaching that I was used to. And the Bible wasn't something that I was used to just working through. And it fascinated me as an approach. I learned more about the Bible sitting under his teaching. And it's like I said, and I watched his family and his wife was really an amazing woman and their kids were amazing. And I think that started me on a journey spiritually. And it was certainly good for the marriage by going back to church. I think that commitment to my wife, you know, meant a lot to her and... You know, it took many, many years, but, you know, we were able to patch that up, and our marriage is really, really strong now. So, again, another thing I give God a lot of credit for, but an intervention, shall we say. And I can look at that as a God moment where he kind of protecting me from the mistakes I'd made, but, you know, also providing a path out of those. What I find just fascinating about that is you were a self-declared secular humanist. Read the Humanist Manifesto. And yet your heart was soft enough that this feeling that you needed to fight for your marriage kind of bubbled up mm-hmm. seemingly out of nowhere. Felt that way because you know, it was like a, it was a thought that came from outside of myself. I mean, in retrospect, I can see where you know, God led me down that path. It wasn't what, something what, that I did through my own volition necessarily. What, was there anything going on during that time that kind of softened your heart enough or your mind enough to be open to something like that. Again, you know, from a logical perspective, the way that my brain tends to work, that's not what I would have done. I would have bolted. I would have just, you know, stayed in control, done my thing. And so I have to point to external, you know, prompting or leading to have done that because I don't think my own heart would have found that solution. I'm absolutely blown away by that because I think if I had been in the same situation, I would have absolutely closed it off and been like, nope, and moved on. And obviously your life would have turned out very differently Yep. because you probably, I mean, you can't say God wouldn't have got a hold of you at some point down the road later on, but that obviously was like kind of that turning point of God saying, okay, here you go. Yep. I have a different plan for yep. you. So I'm going to plant this desire in your heart. I'm going to plant this idea in your mind. Yep. And completely agree. That was, that's and, just, and, oh my gosh, that's just fascinating to me. Yeah, definitely a pivot. So this is 1995, 1996 time. Yep. And you said just a little bit ago that your real faith moment was in 2003. What kind of happened during that <laughs> in between yeah, starting to fi- finding of, this church and then actually saying 2003 was my big moment? Again, I got this opportunity to be a CEO. So we moved to Seattle, which was really painful for my wife. And she, you know, bless her soul, she from, made that, she made that, from Portland. I was Portland, you know, we were in Portland. We'd been there at this point 16 years back in Portland. And so my wife's friends, now her church, you know, our kids. Our son was off to college and our daughter was graduating from high school. So Where'd your son go off to school? Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Okay. And, um, but I got this opportunity back in Seattle and I wanted to move. I wanted to take advantage of this job opportunity. My wife supported me. Very painful for her. She left a lot of friends behind and... 99 was another really tough year because we moved to Seattle. I was really busy with my new job. I was traveling again. You know, she moved, new house, had to find new friends, new church. And it was a really, really tough time for her. But, you know, by then recommitted to the marriage. And so 
we stuck it out, and that was a tough four years. I mean, again, you know, the business didn't go as well as I would have liked. That wasn't the outcome that I wanted. But what I'd found was just a real hunger to at least study, and I was open to, so I was reading a lot of books, and, you know, Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, good example, and just other books that were things that helped me kind of think through kind of the intellectual side of faith that I had never really yeah. explored. Yeah. And so it was 2000, I think it was 2003 was the year and I, this is a kind of a funny little story. Everybody's got their, a lot of people have their conversion stories or their testimonies. My wife finally got kind of impatient with me. And it was one night on Saturday, she said, you know, you've been reading a lot of books. That's great. And we've been going to this church. It's kind of a seeker friendly church and not yeah. really a strong commitment there. And so I remember distinctly, it was a Saturday night. My wife loved to roller skate. That was her deal. So she was going off to go roller skating. And she kind of said, well, you know, I really don't want to push you, but you know, yeah, I've been really kind of patient. You've been reading a lot. It's been years. You know, are you ever going to make a decision? Are you in or are you out on this whole faith thing? And I said, well, yeah, you know, you're right. I kind of realized that you can study, you know, till the cows come home. And at some point, leap of faith is a real word. I mean, you have to just decide if you're in or not. And, you know, I'm probably, I need to make that decision. And she got all excited. She's like, really? Well, that's great. And she goes, you know, these guys came to the door a couple months ago and they wanted to talk to me about Christian faith. And I told them, well, don't waste your time. I'm already a believer, you know, but come on in, let's talk. And so she was talking to these two guys who were missionaries. And she said, you know, they left me a VHS tape. Maybe we can watch it together. And I said, oh, I'm, I don't want to watch any tape. I said, well, why don't you just leave it? Go ahead and go roller skating. Maybe I'll watch it later tonight. So she went off and I was home alone. And so I pulled this tape out, VHS tape back in the day, right? And I plop it in the VHS recorder. And it was the Jesus film from yeah. Crew, which I didn't know at the time. I didn't know anything about it, right? Yeah. So I, I watched yeah. this thing. It was actually one of the cheesiest movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but, you know, it gets to the end of the movie and there's the sinner's prayer. So I got down on my knees and I prayed the sinner's prayer after the end of the movie. And, and I said, look, God, if you're real, I'm one of these really stubborn, kind of doubtful kind of guys. So <laughs> you're probably going to need to give me some kind of a sign just to make sure that I know that it's real, right? But I'll pray the prayer. I went to bed. My wife came home late and I was already asleep and she didn't want to wake me up. So she slept in the guest room. And the house we had, we were living at the time was up on a hill looking out over a lake. And I love to leave the windows open on the bedroom because in the morning I could kind of look out and see the lake. And so I wake up in the morning and roll over and look out the window and there's this massive rainbow stretched across the lake. And I went, that's, that's my, it. That's, that's my it. rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> so I was all excited. So I went in the guest room and woke her up and said, I prayed the prayer last night and God gave me a rainbow. And <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy kind of experience. So, you know, we call my daughter and, you know, tell her. And she's actually at Seattle Pacific University across town at this point in time. So she's crying and I'm crying. And my mom was in her 80s at this point. And so I called my mom and told her all about it. And, of course, my mom was still a devout Catholic, right? Yes. And she knew that what I was saying was kind of born-again language, right? And the first words out of her mouth, I call her, I'm all excited. And she says, where did I go wrong? <laughs> I was like, dang, this is really exciting news. And where did I go wrong? What's that all about? So, and we called my son who was, I think he was in Pittsburgh at the time, still at school. And he wasn't a believer. He was fine with leaving the faith. You know? And he kind of said, oh, well, that's interesting. I guess I'm, I'm happy for you. you know? so, so anyway, that was just a really you know, beginning of a really fun journey. But it was, it was one of those conversion experiences that's a little bit more dramatic than, than others. <laughs> so. so 2003... Yep. The company gets bought by Motorola. Mm -hmm. You exit. Where do you land? I took a little time off. Ended up at a company called Coinstar, which was based in Bellevue. And another that was actually company. another, that was just a real blessing. You know, I met, a friend of mine had been the chief financial officer at Rate Assist. I met him there. He had also moved to Seattle. Summer of 2003, uh, was being recruited to be the chief financial officer at Coinstar. And I knew about Coinstar just by reputation in town and I kind of felt like I knew a lot about Coinstar because I kind of lived vicariously through him making this decision to take the job there as the mm -hmm. CFO, and his name was Brian. So Brian and I were good friends, known each other a long time, golf buddies and all that. So about December, I'm talking to Brian and actually just looking for some consulting business because at the time I was thinking about maybe just doing that. And Brian said, well, you know, we don't need a consultant, but we surely do need another executive team member here. And um, he said, why don't you come over and talk to our CEO, this guy named Dave Cole. And so right after Christmas, 2003, I think it was, just coming into 2004, I went over and met with Dave. And I don't mean to make it such a long story, but it turns out when I met Dave, we just had an instant rapport. He was born in Toledo, Ohio. I was an Indiana kid. He was raised Catholic, had a bunch of brothers, five-kid family, and walked away from his faith in college, went to work at Procter & Gamble, and had spent a whole bunch of years in consumer packaged goods, and really root and tootin' business guy. He and his wife had adopted a son who turned out to be just a really troubled kid. 
and that just brought him to his knees. In his case, it wasn't his marriage, it was his child. Yeah. Just brought him yeah. to his knees, and he had had a, you know, he gave his life to the Lord, you know, through this experience with his son. So he and I just had this immediate kind of, you know, Midwestern kids, and, you know, walked away from the Catholic faith, and had come back to uh, strong born-again faith, and he was a real, genuine, you know, solid guy, and he and I just really hit it off. So they offered me the job pretty much, you know, almost on the spot. And the role was? The role was I was kind of the chief technology officer, and so I ran engineering, manufacturing, and IT, and also one of their plans was to start acquiring companies and build a division of in the payments business, and so I was kind of a dual role. I was the CTO, and then I also was intended to build up a payments division, so we did a bunch of M&A, which I had experience with, and Brian was really good at mergers and acquisitions as well. So I was there for seven and a half years. And one Microsoft. of those little mergers and acquisitions, one of those acquisitions really, was a little company that people may have heard of. Called, called Redbox. Redbox. Yep. I was somewhat involved in it in the diligence phase and all that. Brian really led the charge. But yeah, I mean, Redbox just became a giant. I mean, Coinstar, just to put some terms on it. Coinstar was like a $180 million company, I think, when I joined, 400 people. And we bought into Redbox when they were really small. We bought the whole company in 2009. And then next thing you knew, it was a $2 billion company. I mean, it was just dwarfed the rest of Coinstar. So um, it was really another one of those rocket ship type experiences. So that just turned out to be a, a really wonderful experience in many ways. Now, right around this time, you started following Chuck Colson. Mm-hmm and signed up with his Centurions program. And that really kind of took things in your life to a whole new level. Yeah, experience-wise, again, after I became a believer, we joined a really good biblical church. And uh, the pastor there, a guy named Bud Diener, he offered a bunch of guys, he just said, hey, I'm going to teach a class on biblical worldview. Who's in? And I said, what the heck is a biblical worldview? So I said, I'm in. So, (laughs) you know, I I just really liked Bud, and he was a great teacher. And so I did this program for about one year in the church, basically just teaching us the basics of biblical worldview. And during that time, I found out about Breakpoint, which was a program. And I ended up reading a lot of Chuck's books at that time. And I found out about Breakpoint, started following Breakpoint. And then I saw an ad in Breakpoint saying that Chuck had this program called Centurions, which was a one-year deep dive on biblical worldview. And I said, wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, I've heard of the guy. I mean, I've read his books. You know, I've watched Breakpoint. And so I applied to the Centurions program. I was in that program in 2007. And that really set the hook, you know, really, really deep. And so I was still at Coinstar, and we were doing the Redbox thing, and that rolled along until about 2010. So and that's when some other things in my life started changing. So that led to my time away. Yeah, that was an interesting time as well. Again, family. 2010, Redbox was going crazy. Coinstar was going crazy. Career was going well. Family was going well. But I'm the youngest son of three boys. And my oldest brother was 14 years older than me. And then I had a brother nine years older than me. And my oldest brother, Jim, had gotten Parkinson's disease or had been diagnosed with Parkinson's in his 50s. And he was now mid-60s. Actually, in 2010, he passed away, and he was 68 at the time. And so, yeah, obviously we knew it to some extent because he'd been declining, yeah. ended up in a nursing home toward the end, had you know, just severe dementia. And, but he was only 66, or 68, excuse me. And I still remember it was like May of 2010, went back for the funeral back in Indiana, and my other brother, Gary, who was nine years older than me, was at the wedding, and he had had a heart attack, and then later had had a stroke. And I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, and I'm at the funeral, and he's doing the full-on walker with the tennis balls at this point, and fell down at the funeral, and this mm. was clearly declining really rapidly, mm. and I knew that he wasn't going to last long, and he actually died a couple of years later at the age of 66. So I'm sitting there looking at it going, okay, so my wife's mother died at 56 from breast cancer, her dad died at 63, my dad had died at 69, one brother died at 68, now another brother is dying. And we had two kids, both of whom had just recently gotten married. So we knew grandkids were probably around the horizon. And I had 34 years at this point doing the career thing. And I'd been through this whole spiritual exercise with Chuck and all that. And it just was on my heart that it was time to go do something different. I don't know what it was, but, you know, take step back from the corporate job, step back from all the travel and the intensity of that work. And so summer of 2010, I just approached the leadership team and said, look, I'd like to gracefully leave find somebody else to take on my job. Actually, financially, Redbox had been hugely successful, which led to you know, stock options that were worth some money. And that, <laughs> that enabled the whole thing to happen. So it was a real blessing. So it was like August of 10. And then by April of 2011, I stepped away from that. And the first thing I was going to do, I, I didn't know, I was praying about, you know, like, what's next? I was 55. So I wasn't exactly going to just go retire and play golf. And one of the things Chuck had really put on all of us about that had been through the Centurions program was 
he wanted to localize it. So he was encouraging us, if you have enough commissioned centurions in a particular city, start a, a cohort, an affiliate of the centurions program locally. So I said, well, there's a bunch of us in Seattle had been through the program. Yeah. So I called a group of us together and we formed a team of about eight of us and we planted a local version of the centurions program in Seattle, which we launched in 2012. And also had an opportunity to start working with Chuck and his team back in Virginia as part of this. And then met John Stone Street at that point. He and I became friends over the years from 2007 until this time around 2011. Started working together a lot, and then you know, Chuck Hoppin dies on us in April of 2012. So that, that created a bit of a crisis for all of us that were really loved him and loved the ministry and loved what he was doing. And we knew that he had this legacy that we wanted to protect, but you know, we really needed well, to figure out what that looked like. Let's talk about Chuck, because inevitably there are people that are going to be listening right now that they may have heard the name, but they don't really know the history mm. of Chuck Colson. Yeah. Chuck was an amazing dude. Yes, I mean, was. he was one of Dr. Dobson's closest friends. In fact, yep. I heard Doc say Chuck was his best friend. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the few that Doc really admired as well as listened to as right. a peer. Right. And right. the two of them would just swap stories. I had the incredible benefit of being at a lunch with Doc and Chuck in the Nashville area and just seeing those two interact and just talk. It was just, it was magical. So Chuck Colson, who was right. he? Well, you know, depending on what version of Chuck you know, I mean, John will often say, John, you know, Chuck had three lifetimes. He was, uh, you know, a lawyer and a Marine that got into politics and ended up, you know, helping Nixon in his first administration, then really ran Nixon's reelection campaign in 1972, was special counsel to the president, you know, sat in the office next to the Oval Office, and he was, you know, not a nice guy in many ways. People called him, uh, you know, Nixon's hatchet man was kind of one of his notorious phrases. Supposedly he said something at one point about he'd run over his grandmother to get Nixon reelected or something. I don't know if he actually <laughs> said that or not, but he was accused of that. He uh, had a dramatic conversion to Christianity in 19, in the early, in 72, 73. He had left the administration already at that point and was going back into private practice and met a guy named Tom Phillips, who was a former client of his. And Tom Phillips had come to Christ through a Billy Graham crusade at Madison Square Garden earlier and yeah. uh, was on fire for the Lord. And actually Chuck was the first person he'd ever chosen to witness to, you know, Zeke. He had really had that fervor that if I'm a believer, I'm supposed to witness. and. I got this guy named Chuck Colson, and Chuck Colson needs the Lord. So Chuck was coming to his house, and Tom witnessed to Chuck, read to him from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and talked about pride, and it just really pierced Chuck's heart at that point. And Chuck had a very dramatic conversion, and part of that was actually very quickly realizing that he needed to tell the truth, and part of what he needed to tell the truth about was Watergate. He was not directly involved. He did not authorize the Watergate break-in, but he knew a lot about what was going on, and so he actually committed, or I should say, he um, pleaded guilty to a charge he was actually not charged with, which was the break-in of Daniel Pentagon Papers. I can't remember the guy's name now. Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg. So he did admit to having orchestrated the break-in at Daniel Ellsberg's office and stealing the Pentagon Papers, or actually stealing Mm -hmm. records about Ellsberg to basically prove that he had mental issues to try to discredit him. So anyway, he was convicted of that crime and also testified, I think it was Sirico was the judge at the time of the Watergate hearing anyway. So long story short, Chuck goes to prison. He's eventually transferred to a Maxwell prison, it's a maximum security prison in Alabama. And his faith just grew by leaps and bounds while he was in prison. And he got involved in prison ministry and really got deep into that. When he was released, he originally thought he was just gonna go back into law. And he tells the story, it's really, it's in one of his books, I think it was the Born Again, his first book, Born Again. There was a guy named Archie who was an African-American guy that was a scary guy in prison. Yeah. Chuck remembers leaving prison after he was released, and Archie confronted him and said, okay, Mr. Fancy Pants, you're probably just going to go back to your country club now. You're going to forget all about us guys back here. And Chuck said, no, Archie, I won't forget you guys. And it just haunted him afterwards, you know. And to some extent, we also sometimes, one of our phrases in the Colson Center is, one of the ways to get Chuck Colson to do something was to tell him he wouldn't do it. That, that would, usually, that would usually get him. So he ended up starting a prison ministry, which eventually became Prison Fellowship, which is now 40-some years old, and it's in hundreds of prisons around the world, and it's just a massive thing. I mean, Chuck always did things on a big scale. So that was kind of chapter two of his life, was the prison ministry. And he did that and was very successful with that. But later in the 90s, 80s and 90s, I think, Chuck really looked at culture and he realized that, you know, one of his favorite things to say is that when he was in prison, there was about 240,000 people in prison in the 70s. When he looked back in the late 80s, early 90s, there were 2.4 million people in prison. So he said, you know, they're building prisons in California faster than I can start a Bible study in one. 
and what's going on here? And he started really looking intellectually at the, you know, kind of the origins of the bad moral choices that were being made. And he looked at the church and the church history, became a student of people like Francis Schaeffer and Abraham Kuyper and Kelvin and you know, Aquinas and looked at it and said, you know, historically the church has done its best work when the culture's at its worst. And the church, being the church, is supposed to run into the plague, is run into the problems and be salt and light. And that led him to really start writing books, you know, The, the Body and How Now Shall We Live and Kingdoms in Conflict. And really the last 10, 15 years of his life, he didn't really stop doing the prison ministry, but other people ran that and he really felt like God was calling him to spend the last 10 or 15 years of his life kind of replicating himself and teaching others how to think Christianly which is what led to Breakpoint. It's what led to like books like How Now Shall We Live. It led to the Centurions program and ultimately the Colson Center. So Chuck passes away. Yep. And Colson Center eventually is spun off right. into its own organization outside of prison fellowship. Correct. And that's kind of where you come on board and yep. kind of help John grow this thing and make it into what it's becoming now. Yeah, well, it's that, and again, that's... You know, I sometimes feel like Forrest Gump. I mean, I feel like I'm a nobody that just has been able to be there at these amazing moments in history with all these you know, really fascinating people. But it's been a real gift and a pleasure to do this. So John and I had become friends. The board and the family realized a couple years after Chuck passed away that while Prison Fellowship and the Colson Center were two really good ministries and Chuck loved them both, they're just so different that it really made more sense for them to be independent. So in June of 2015, the board voted to allow the Colson Center to spin off as an independent ministry. Ironically, with my corporate experience, it was almost like mergers and acquisitions again. It was a divestiture, and they were really gracious. I mean, just unbelievably gracious. We discussed it, and they gave us the intellectual property and the brands and the trademarks and some cash and gave us access to the donors and the team that we had and all the breakpoint content from all those decades of, of time. And so we had a really good start. You know, we we're just a really, really gracious treatment. So basically July 1st, 2015, we were like a startup. We had to go start up a whole new ministry, but we were inheriting this massive legacy and all this content and all the stuff that Chuck had built. And so the last four and a half years really is what that's all been about. So, you know, John was clearly anointed as Chuck's successor and Chuck really saw John as a young man, as somebody to pour himself into. And um, so John was really anointed to be the teacher, the speaker, the writer, you know, really the heart and soul of the ministry in terms of the content. I had experience with business and with organization and with you know, just the financial aspects of things. So it was just a really good partnership. I'm kind of mystery inside, trying to keep the trains running, and you know, John does what John does so well. Well, I love working with you, my man. Make the pitch for the Colson Fellows hmm. Program, which is what it's now known as. Yes. The Centurion Program has become the Colson Fellows Talk about what it is uh, to kind of whet the appetite of listeners, of holy smokers, Mm -hmm. who may be interested in something like this. Yeah, I mean, our whole goal is really it's transformational individually and institutionally. I mean, that's kind of how we look at it. You know, back in 2003, again, a little history lesson, Chuck was meeting with his board of advisors for the Colson Center piece of the ministry. And the board was really intentional. It's like, Chuck, you're in your 70s. You know, we all know that you have a finite amount of time on this earth. What's your legacy going to be? That was the question. What's your legacy going to be? And Chuck said, well, you know, I don't want my legacy to be a building and I don't want my legacy to be, you know, my books. I don't want my legacy to be even the ministry. I want my legacy to be people. And so one of the advisors, a guy named Jim Van Dearden, who's a brilliant guy, really good strategist, creative guy. I was not there at this meeting, but I've talked to people that were there and I've talked to Jim and he swears it happened this way. He just was inspired and he said, well, Chuck, you know what you should do is you should grab 100 people a year. You should bring them to D.C. and you should spend a year with them and teach them all that you've learned about worldview and culture and how to engage culture. And I don't know, maybe we should call it something like Centurions, you know, just to connote the fact it's like 100 people a year. And apparently the room went quiet. Jim tells me that he looked at Chuck and Chuck had a scowl on his face. And Jim said, oh, no, I've made him mad. And Chuck just thought about it for a minute. He goes, that's brilliant. Let's do that. And he turned to his team and said, we're doing it. So <laughs> that was just Chuck. I mean, you know, he had great plans for people's lives. And so that was April of 03 and January of 04, they launched the Centurions program and they got hundred people a year and they would bring him into DC and Chuck would spend a year pouring into them and bring a lot of other faculty members. And you, know, you read a lot, you watched movies, you critiqued culture, you tried to understand. One of the earliest things they did too was Chuck would say, look, you know, this is not for your own intellectual edification. This is 
for you to go off and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Teach others. And whatever sphere of influence God's planted you in, make a difference. So if you're a lawyer, if you're a business person, you're a homeschool mom, you're an educator, you're a government employee, whatever God's called you to do, take this learning and apply it in your sphere of influence. So one of the earliest pieces was a three-year plan. Everybody to be commissioned as a Colson Fellow. By the way, Chuck would never let you call it a graduation. Because he said, when I became a Marine, I was commissioned into service. So <laughs> everything I had just gone through, that was just the beginning. Yeah. You know, that was the preparation. Now you really start your service. So we've always called it a commissioning ceremony. And one of the elements of the commissioning, in addition to all the work that you did, you had to do a teaching project and you had to do a three-year plan. And, you know, sometimes the three-year plan is exactly what people do. Sometimes it's something different. It's not the plan that's important. It's the planning. And so that's really, I think, one of the distinctives about the, the deal is you study in community with a lot of other people from all different spheres of influence and you focus on this three-year plan. And we have like 2,000 people now that have been through the program over the last, this is our 15th year. So when we commission the next class in May of 2020, it'll be the 15th class that has been commissioned. And you know, there's doctors, there's dentists, there's lawyers, there's business people, there's people from all walks of life. And it's really, you know, the goal is spiritual transformation, but also really helping people understand how to understand culture and how to use their calling, their sphere of influence and the teaching that they've received you know, to make a difference as a kind of, you know, one of the agents of restoration, that's kind of the big play that we do is that, you know, God, one of God's calling for us is that we are reconciled and therefore we are to be reconcilers. And, you know, God's big plan, the big story is the story of restoration and everybody has a part to play in that. And that's what we try to do through this is create restorers. How do people find out more? Colsonfellows.org. Colsonfellows.org. Yep. I yes. highly recommend it. And we have... By the way, the other thing, just as a last point for people, just for making it easy for people, we've lowered the price. And the regional programs that we started back in 2012 have now flourished. And this year we had 25 cities where we run the Colson Fellows program. And next year we're going to have 40 cities. So the goal is in four years to be in the top 100 cities in the country so that people can not only go through the program, but go through it easily. They can go through it with a local learning community in their city. There's a group in Colorado Springs, there's a group in Fort Collins, a group in Denver, group in Austin, Dallas, Houston, Seattle, lots of places around the country. So it's easy. Steve Verlay, my man, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Let's get to rapid fire questions. Okay. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80 year old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years. So I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020. He also talked about how we wrestle with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in, but the podcast is changing that. When I showed this to Kay at his house recently, we both started tearing up. This is my why for doing this show. So if that moved you, would you consider partnering with us? Kay and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. And there at patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episode, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a holy smokes t-shirt, and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire. Here. All right. Cigars or pipe? Cigars. When did you start cigars? Now, actually, I don't know. I've smoked cigars a little bit over the years. I'm not a hardcore cigar guy like some of my friends in this Holy Smokes Club. But you know, I've always had the opportunity, mostly on the business side, when I traveled around, I would share a cigar with various people that worked for the companies I worked in. But it's become much more of a thing with you know, getting introduced to Kay and the Holy Smokes Club many years ago and just the amount of fellowship that I've been able to enjoy with people all over the country now. Best dollar for dollar cigar. 
Boy, does a League of Nine count as a dollar for dollar? I mean, it's expensive, but it's just so good that it's worth it still. Favorite cigar? Liga Provada Number no. 9 is still my favorite, although I've been smoking Tabernacles recently as well, and there is a connection, I'm told, as well between those two. Interesting. All right. What's your splurge cigar? You want to go celebrate, and you want to get something that you normally don't buy. Well, I, I must admit, the Liga Provada Number no. 9 used to be in that category. And although recent favorite has been Olivo Milanios. So that's a splurge as well. Your go-to place to get cigars. Casa de Monte Cristo in Austin right now is my favorite place, I think. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? I don't drink alcohol. That's another whole story, which God healed me from alcoholism. So that's a whole other podcast probably. So sparkling water is <laughs> probably my pairing. I know that sounds really lame. No, my favorite pairing is a Coke, which I have right here. I just there there, There's something about just that little bit of sweetness with the mm-hmm. cigar I just love. All right, some non-cigar questions. All right. Marvel or DC? N- neither? Neither. Okay. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. I was a Trekkie back in the day when nice. it first came out. Favorite food? Chinese cuisine, yeah. broadly. Dogs, cats, neither dogs. or both? Like both, but we're really dog people. Nickname, growing up or in college? Oh, goodness. Didn't have one. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I was a DJ in college. Classical music station. Classical music station? (laughs) I don't know if you can even call that a DJ at that point, but yeah. In South Bend, Indiana? In South Bend, Indiana. Notre Dame, actually. Notre Dame had an FM station that did classical music, and I was a DJ. But we could cut loose. Midnight on Saturdays, we could play whatever we wanted, so we could spin up some rock, classic rock, starting at midnight on Saturdays. Favorite book not titled The Holy Bible? (laughs) Boy. You know, I've been a real fan of an author by the name of Will Thomas lately. And he's a mystery writer. Well, he's kind of a Sherlock Holmes type book set in Victorian England. The lead character is a guy named Cyrus Barker, who is kind of a Sherlock Holmes kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But he goes to Spurgeon's church, and he's a believer. Interesting. And the book winds just an amazing set of kind of biblical themes in with Sherlock Holmes mystery. So and I love Sherlock Holmes stuff. I'll read anything that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. So. It's kind of fun to get on ramp to another version of Sherlock Holmes type stories, but with a biblical theme behind it, which is really fascinating. So going back to that question that was posed to Chuck at that meeting, Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to add this to my queue of questions that I finish with. What do you want your legacy to be? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a hard one. You know, I read a lot of Bob Buford back in the day. You know, uh, Halftime was kind of a meaningful book for me. right about when I stepped down from the CEO job. And I think his, he said his epitaph was going to be 100x. You know, just he really wanted to be an accelerator. And I, he had another phrase about, my fruit grows on other people's trees. And I thought that was a really cool phrase. So, you know, I've learned, actually, toward the end of my career at Coinstar and my career now, I just love helping other people find their groove. And, you know, I'm 64. John's, you know, 20 years younger than me. And I just had such a blast finding Christian leaders who are in their 40s who have just have immense upside and just being able to be helpful in any way, shape, or form I can be. So well, it's a long I, answer to it, but my fruit growing in other people's trees is part of that. I, well, I can see in my interactions with the team at Colson and the way in which Brian Brown, who's the VP of marketing yep. there, talks about you, you are doing that within the Colson circles. I mean, Brian it's, just speaks so highly of you. He's an amazing he's, guy. I love Brian to death. Yeah. And I will have him on at some point to talk yeah. about Anselm Society, which is a society for Christian artists yep. and Sacred artisans. Art. And it's, it's a beautiful yeah. organization. Now, there's nothing more fun than seeing people with that kind of potential and catching them when they're in their 30s or 40s and just knowing that they've got an immense headroom and just being able to be a part of you know, trying to help them, you know, maximize their potential. Nothing better. So you are doing that, my man. I'm enjoying it. All right. Last two. Yep. If you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, who would they be? Three people. Can't name Jesus. Albert Einstein. He's a pipe guy, right? He's a pipe guy. Yeah. I I was a big fan of Einstein because I was was such a science geek. That would be really fascinating. Spurgeon would be another. And I think G.K. Chesterton would be another one. Ooh. Those three. All right. 
So with Einstein, this is something I meant to ask you during the interview, but we went over it so quickly. You wanted to get into astronomy. Yep. Are you still in it? Are you still into you know, it? No, not at all, unfortunately. I mean, I'm still fascinated by it, but I, I just, you know, I read one point when you get older, sometimes you, go, you return to the hobbies of your youth. And so I actually bought a telescope maybe five, 10 years ago, thought I'd get back into it again, but I just don't have the passion for it. I mean, I'd still love to go out in the night sky in Colorado Springs and look at the Milky Way and, and all that, but don't have the passion to really you know, obsess about it like I did when I was a teenager. Well, if I remember right, before we started, you mentioned you haven't been to Western Australia. You've only been right. to the East Coast. Right. I can tell you right now, I have never, ever, 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 ever seen stars like I saw in Western yeah, Australia, different. rural Western Australia. It was Stunning. And the next time I go out, I'm going to be spending a lot more time with my brother under the stars with a cigar, just lights off. And it was, <laughs> seeing, it was seeing, unbelievable. Seeing constellations you can't even see here, like oh Southern my Cross. Gosh, yeah. It was yeah. unbelievable. All right, last question. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a bottle of champagne, what are we celebrating? <laughs> I hate, hate to be so commercial in terms of, you know, I love what we're doing at the Colson Center. And I think we're poised to just, you know, kind of go off in another growth spurt, another increase in the kind of influence we can have. And, you know, knowing Chuck's dreams for this, you know, in a way, you know, just being able to be part of carrying on that legacy. And like, you know, we talked about the Colson Fellows Program before, and, you know, our goal is to have hundreds and then thousands of people go through that program. And when you see the light goes on and you see those people going through the same kind of transformation that I did, that's a kick. ColsonFellows.org is the website. I highly recommend people check that out if that's something that pricked your spirit or your intellect or whatever. If, if, If you were nudged go check it out. Please do. Steve Verley, my man, I love you. You are just one special dude. Thanks for being on the Hoist Smokes Thanks for the opportunity.